All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Well, welcome back to our class on First Kings. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So far, so simple. We have the transition from David to Solomon. We do have a section in which that business is wrapped up and Solomon also clears out not only those left over from David's reign, but then also those adversaries of his own. And very humbly, God comes to Solomon in a, in a dream and very humbly Solomon requests not wealth or riches or power or might or long life or victory over his enemies, etc., but rather to have a hearing heart, an ability to understand the mind of God and to understand people and to apply wisdom in discerning what is right as he rules God's people. And so an example of that, of course, very famously, the two women come with the one child, Solomon threatens to cut the child in two. The true mother is revealed, wanting to, the child to be spared. And so Solomon exercises wonderful wisdom. And that continues through chapter 4, focusing on Solomon's wisdom that God gives. And also remember, very much how Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things would be added unto us. Uh, in Solomon, this is seen in an ultimate kind of way where he seeks first the righteousness and the wisdom of God and God gives that to him and bestows it on him such that there is no other person like Solomon in accord with wisdom. And then God adds everything else as well. Incredible, incredible wealth. In chapter 5, he's going to take that wealth then and build a temple for God. The desire of his father David's heart is now going to be executed and carried out by Solomon. If memory serves, then we left off at chapter 6, where we'll pick up. Of course, they have the tabernacle, but in the narrative, that has simply not played a prominent role. We've been looking at um, the motif of kingship and the nation, and we have not seen much. It's, it's there, it's in the background, but it has not been the focal point. Here, then, we see how the tabernacle is going to be replaced by the temple. And we want to keep in our minds, too, that this is what we're going to see as Solomon's temple, or the first temple. This temple, of course, is destroyed in 587, 586, just depending upon who's dating it and how. And so that's when this temple goes away. And then, of course, in the, in the next generation or two, under Ezra and Nehemiah, etc., the temple is rebuilt, but only, only in a way that is just partly the former glory. It doesn't even come close to this first temple. And Herod is engaged in a large building 
project to embellish the second temple. And that's when our Lord comes onto the scene. And of course, that second temple is destroyed in 70 AD and is no more to this day. So we just want to get ourselves contextualized. You're going to see that Solomon's temple is much greater, much grander than uh, the second temple. All right, chapter 6, verse 1. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Again, the basis of everything that Israel does is God delivering them from Pharaoh and bringing them through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. So the Exodus. The Exodus is the salvific event, if you will, of the Old Testament. And then the parallel to that, of course, would be in the New Testament. Just this this Sunday that's approaching, we'll have the transfiguration. And in Luke's accord, uh, Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah about his exodus, namely his death on the cross, his resurrection, his passing through death itself and leading us through death itself into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. So the Old Testament exodus is a foreshadowing of the greater exodus led not by Moses, but by our Lord Jesus Christ and that exodus of which we are all a part, even to this day. But in the Old Testament, prior to the incarnation, prior to the crucifixion and resurrection, everything is predicated upon this deliverance of God in and through the waters. In the same way that everything in in our age, in the church age, is predicated upon the cross of Jesus and the waters of holy baptism. So we have a none-too-subtle reminder of that, that this temple has come to be because of God's deliverance and His faithfulness to His people, even if it takes 480 years for God to have a permanent dwelling place with man. And after this, another thousand years before Christ comes and tabernacles among us. And then we have indeed had Christ as our true temple for 2,000 years, roughly speaking, 2,000 years. And we, and we look forward to the fulfillment, the climax of which the last book of the canonical scriptures, Revelation, speaks where there is no temple because God is our temple and the dwelling place of God is with man. And to simply be and exist in the new heavens and the new earth is to be one with Christ and one with God. The, the temple is not only the dwelling place of God with Israel, but it is the place in which the sacrifices are performed and particularly think of the, the sacrifices. We can, we can take sacrifice and put it into two different categories. We can take sacrifice and put it into the uh, atoning category, the sacrificial, the bloodshed for atonement for sins, kind of a justification category. And then we can also have the Eucharistic or Thanksgiving offerings, which put it in a sanctification category. Uh, broadly speaking. And so we've got these two sacrifices, but for God to dwell with man, in a sense, in a sense, the temple where he makes that, that his dwelling place and locates him there, himself there graciously for the people, it's a foreshadowing of the incarnation. When, 
when God becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ, God still is everywhere as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet he is located there in his fullness for us graciously so that we can ex access him. And we access the same Christ Jesus crucified and risen through the sacraments. But this idea that the dwelling place of God with, is with man in the temple foreshadows the incarnation, which then foreshadows, as we've said, the new heavens and the new earth. And in order for a holy God to dwell with sinful human beings, there must be atonement for those sins. There must be a blood covering. And so that sacrificial covering of sins is, the, is really part and parcel of the, of the temple. So that even as we contemplate the word becoming flesh, we know he becomes flesh in order to bear our sins and be our savior, shed his blood that we might be cleansed. So I want you to just see that, that as, as God locates himself graciously for us in the temple, God locates himself graciously for us on the cross. The center of the temple is going to be the blood sacrifice. The center of, of God incarnate in Christ is going to be the blood of the cross. So we'll see then much foreshadowing, and uh, maybe it's a little dramatic to state it this way, but when we're learning about the Old Testament temple, we're really learning about Christ. We're really seeing a foreshadowing and a type of Christ. All right, verse 2. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. If memory serves, a cubit is 18 inches. If anybody finds different, I didn't really look through the study notes on this to verify that. So you can do the math, um, 60 times 18 inches, a foot and a half. What would that be? 90 feet? I'm seeing some heads nodding. <laughs> I, stopped doing I stopped doing math in high school, I think. I went as, as hard as you could go, and then for undergrad, I think you had to do one class. <laughs> And so I did that and I was done. <laughs> Never looked back. Well, so about 90 feet, you know, that gives you a sense for how long it is. Sixty cubits long, twenty cubits wide. That'd be thirty feet, wouldn't it? So, uh, assuming I've got cubit right, of course, but that, that just gives you a rough sense for how big the temple proper is. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And here, if you are using a Lutheran study, well, if you're not, why not? <laughs> Save your money and get one. Get an extra job and get one and then quit. <laughs> Do whatever it takes. Get a Lutheran study Bible. But on page 541, you'll see there a, uh, a very nice drawing of Solomon's temple. And you'll even see the dates there that it stood, 960 to 587. We, have, uh, we actually have recovered very little archaeological evidence of this temple. I mean, there's no reason to doubt it at all. But, we, but in other words, why I bring that up is because the artistic renderings are just an approximation and are largely built on, off of, on the basis of other archaeological evidence they found of pagan temples at the time 
And so they try to gain a sense of what the, the artist tries to gain a sense of what the style was and then brings that here. So what you're seeing is, is a little bit of a fiction in terms of the, the author's, um, or I should say the artist's interpretation. But not helpful nonetheless. So helpful to have that visual aid now as we're going through the details. So chapter 6, verse 4. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inter inner sanctuary. Well, you can already tell and I'm interested in this, I simply didn't have time to look into the linguistic aspects, but look at how the ESV is translating this with such familiar words. Sanctuary and nave. Yeah, words that we use for our own church campuses, church structures. Um, end of verse 5, and he made side chambers all around. So this is a fascinating thing, a little hard to visualize maybe, but as you would enter through the portico, um, obviously the portico, if you take your, a sharp left, you dead end. If you go a little further into the temple itself, um, if you take a sharp left, and I assume that this is also true if you took a sharp right, uh, you would find yourself in these side rooms or treasuries. And that's where they would store all the, all the riches and conquests and artifacts and that kind of thing. So that's what's mentioned um, here where you have the side chambers made all around. And again, I'm hardly an expert on this, but it does seem as if those go all the way around the temple. All right, verse 6. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. I mean, does this have great symbolic significance? I don't know. <laughs> If it did, it's been lost to us. Um, it, more than likely, it's just a very accurate, detailed description of what was. Well, it looks like he's talking about the structural, you know, he's looking at pounds per square foot on the flooring. So. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's certainly, uh, certainly this isn't a fiction. If this was a fiction, you'd never tell it with so many details, <laughs> right? And as we'll see some details that, um, you know, just don't translate well in terms of, we can't, even, even given the immense amount of detail, we can't exactly picture what was. It's just, it's too ambiguous. It's too difficult to know. All right, uh, verse 7. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Now that bespeaks the way in which it's being built as, as is as important as how it's being built. Yeah. Great, great respect and awe. And a kind of lack of pragmatism that we as Americans would find shocking, I think. 
so that even the building is an act of worship. Even the building of the building is, a, is an act of worship. Verse 8, the entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. Um, of some help, although I think we could want for a little more, is on page 541, the bottom right-hand corner that gives you the side elevation. Uh, that will... The other side of my page is so marked up. And the one thing, the one thing that I would tell CPH to, to do differently the next time is a little thicker pages. <laughs> we'll pay extra. We'll plant some trees. <laughs> we'll do what we can do. So I've got the other side marked up with notes, and I can't tell. You'll have to tell me. On the bottom right-hand corner, is there a very small image of a human being? as you, Or, or is that a mark of my pen? No, there is a little man there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I just wanted to be sure. I didn't want to tell you there was a little man there, and then you all would think I was, you know, losing it. Uh, but but that gives you okay. That gives you a sense for the elevation. And now, as we're talking about the the lower, middle, and upper story, you can you can see that to some degree, can't you? Okay. So again, not not the best drawing, but of some help in in seeing here the. The side elevation, oh yes, and I was correct as I look off to the left, the, obviously the side rooms go all the way around uh, what would be the, you know, the temple proper, the holy place and most holy place together. Okay, verse 9, so he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. This place must have smelled incredible and amazing. Yeah, at least to begin with. I mean, cedar tends to lose its smell after a while, but to begin with, it must have been incredible. Yeah, so, um, yes, wood, wood ev everywhere. Of course, there's stone on the outside, these great stones dug from the, uh, or taken from the quarry, you know. Um, no tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. And then these stones have uh, wood on the inside, cedar on the inside, with beams and planks. Verse 10, he built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. So stone on the outside, cedar on the inside. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon... Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. These words we simply cannot emphasize enough. They tie back to those words that we heard of David, words that are, or, or those words we heard about David, how David is described in just this way. And again, we have an echo to that here. So this isn't requiring some sort of moral perfection, um, but rather following God in his ways, repenting when we fall short, receiving his atonement, his absolution, and then moving forward in the right way. And in no uncertain terms, what God granted to David on, on account, 
he's going to grant to Solomon. And very interesting here, of course, to sort of put in our file where we've often talked about the word of the Lord being the word that becomes flesh. So the possibility of this being a reference to the second person of the Holy Trinity. We don't need to be too tight or too dogmatic about that, but we, we ought to consider that. And look at, the, uh, look at the promises. I will establish my word with you. Isn't that kind of a strange thing? My word will dwell with you. Not only in terms of like a content, but almost in terms of a person. Leans heavily toward that interpretation of the second person of the Trinity. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and not forsake my people Israel. So the dwelling place of God is with Israel. Of course, very dramatically, in Ezekiel, you have this great text about the Lord leaving the temple. And he leaves the temple before this temple is destroyed, again in 587 by the Babylonians. But much of Ezekiel is written about the drama of these very words. God's people had become so unfaithful, had walked so far away from him, had so thoroughly destroyed the covenantal relationship with him, that, he, that this, this warning, um, or the opposite of this promise, actually takes place and he leaves the temple. And that's when we see the chariot of God come down and um, he gets into his chariot from the temple and goes up. Ezekiel sees all this. And then Z- Ezekiel climaxes with this otherly world temple, temple being, being built. Ezekiel, in his mind, uh, toward the end of his prophecy, even leapfrogs over the second temple and really takes us to the incarnation of Christ and the fullness of what it means for us to become members of his body and thus living stones of the eternal temple of God. And this temple that he describes, the measurements of which just are, you know, there's no practical way in which they could be. They're idealized apocalyptic numbers and in order to give us this sense in which God's going to leave this temple because he has a far greater one in mind. So yes, he promises uh, Solomon if he will walk in his statutes, obey his rules, keep all his commandments and walk in them, then he's going to establish his word with him, that same which he spoke to David, and he will dwell with the children of Israel and not forsake his people Israel. Verse 14, so Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. So now we have to do a little flipping back and forth. But there you can see, um, if you look toward the left-hand side of the page where the writings are, you can see the most holy place um, with two cherubim overshadowing or guarding the Ark of the Covenant. We haven't gotten to these details yet. Seen in this biblically literal reconstruction, inner sanctuary portioned off by the curtain or veil and the doors. And so you can see that smaller inner building that is the most holy place described in verse 16. 
Verse 17, the house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary. Now, we have this in most of our Christian churches today. We just call it the chancel and the nave. But this comes to us, so you know in our sanctuary you've got the stairs up. In some churches you have the communion rail and there's the chancel and the nave. Really it takes its modeling from this concept of uh, the most holy place and the nave or the inner sanctuary or yeah, 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 not the inner sanctuary, the nave or um, you know, the holy place as it would be called. So you sort of have the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary, the nave and the chancel um, in our language. Okay, verse 18, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. Now, here we see, again, I think we, we go looking for like kind of a one-to-one symbolic element of, of what these things mean. And, and there just, there isn't that, at least not available to us, that we would know. But what we are going to see through all the nature motif is the Lord who dwells in this temple is the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, and he is the Lord of all creation. So that motif is going to take place, not only earth, but also heaven. And we're going to see heaven and earth and that imagery of heaven and earth melded together in the temple of God. So you're going to have like gourds and lilies and pomegranates and palm trees and lions, but also uh, cherubim and angelic imagery. Again, all of this, all of this pointing to the incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus as Jacob's ladder, upon whom angels are ascending and descending, and the ultimate climax of this reality: the heavens and the earth joined as one. We have a great foretaste of this in the Holy Eucharist, don't we? Because when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, where does he locate his body and blood? In the bread and in the wine here on earth. So is there one body and blood of Jesus that's up in heaven and one body and blood of Jesus that's down on earth? No, that would make for two Jesuses. So the fact that he, that he locates his body and blood here on earth can mean only this, that heaven and earth are drawn into one. This is one of the reasons, there are many other reasons, but this is one of the reasons from Hebrews and Revelation, if I were doing proof text type stuff, but this is one of the reasons why we say in our liturgy with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. Because in the incarnation of Jesus, in the Lord's Supper, we have heaven and earth being drawn into one. Well, as we go to the lesser, as we go to the lesser, even in this temple, we're going to see the same thing by virtue of the architecture. We're going to see heaven, the heavenly beings and the earthly beings all wrapped up in one around God. When you look at the new heavens and the new earth at the end in Revelation, um, there's just such unity that all are one um, with God and in communion with one another. And uh, angels and man are just two of the diverse species uh, gathered around the throne of God. Okay, so that was verse 18. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared 
in the innermost part of the house to set there the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Again, so we're referring to the most holy place in which the ark is going to be put. And of course, what once a year is poured out on the ark? The blood of the unblemished lamb. And so this is, again, where God dwells with sinners, there must be atonement. The Old Testament here points us to the ultimate atonement, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. So much so that, you know, in, in both... Uh, yes, I know for sure it's Paul, and now I think it's also John. Um, they both refer to Christ and His blood as being um, poured out upon or even one with the mercy seat of God. Mm, now I'm second-guessing myself. Maybe it's Paul in Hebrews. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. But the connection is the connection did not escape the apostles. That's the point. Yes, Romans. Dr. Park. Yeah, Romans is what I had in mind. Yeah, the Hilasterion, right? Right, right. Yeah, that's the one I had in mind with Paul. And then I was just trying to think. I'm drawing a blank. This is how it works with me. I'll go sit down in my office and instantly recall who and where. That language of hilasterion is, but I, I want to say, yeah, my impulse is John, but it could be Hebrews to hedge my bet. And uh, yet another, yet another reference to it. So again, it's, um, if, we, if we read these Old Testament scriptures the way the apostles, the way the first century Christians read it, these scriptures are all about Christ because that's really their foreshadowing of Christ and, and who he is and what he accomplishes for us. His blood shed once and for all. All right, so that's the Ark of the Covenant. Of course, in the Ark of the Covenant, among other things, but perhaps most prominent, the stone, the stone tablets upon which the law is written. So it's the blood of Christ that covers uh, those, those stone tablets that we have fallen so woefully short of. Verse 20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. I mean, this is so cool. The holiest of holies is a cube. And inside, it's a cube of gold. It's really kind of incredible. Really kind of incredible. Yeah, if you had a candle, that thing would have been bright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lit up. We'll talk about the light and darkness coming up. We know that there's windows coming in as a general sort of way, but it doesn't seem to be that that's the case in the holiest of holies. So, in fact, we're going to find out about that. I mean, if, if there was no candle in there and if there were no windows, how dark would it be? Oh, <laughs> pitch black. Absolutely pitch black. All right, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah, so the inner sanctuary is a cube. I just love reflect because this is the God who makes space and physics and geometry, <laughs> and it's really kind of cool to just see those things overlap. So you go back to Revelations, what heaven is, a big cube. Yeah, well, yeah, we get a chance to talk about that. There's, there's really, yeah, there's endless theology because... Revelation has a couple of things to say about the temple and about the city of God, both as church and then in its final state. 
that's the fun of theology. I think you get layer upon layer upon layer, and you get all this room and way to play with the themes, and they, it's all true. All right. So, yes, we have the cubed inner sanctuary, and then it is overlaid with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. That's the end of verse 20. And, um, yeah, let me see. Yeah, this is the altar of incense that's being referred to. Here's an interesting point that the study note makes on 620. I had kind of wondered this. And here the study note says in regard to the altar, uh, clearly for incense, which apparently stood close to, okay, yes, or partially in the most holy place. I had wondered about that. I mean, if nothing else, if nothing else, very close to it. Because the, the imagery, like in Isaiah 6, as I, is the smoke of the incense almost seems to be, become the train of his robe in that vision. Right near the curtain, or as this study note suggests, partially perhaps somewhat in. Now, I don't, I don't know. Obviously, you'd have to have some room, right? But, you know, perhaps the sense in which he's receiving the incense, I don't know. Or maybe some linguistic descriptor causes them to, to wonder that. But I don't, you know, maybe it's not even meaningful. It's just, yes, to be sure. So if, you're, if you were looking at the inner sanctuary, at the, the holy place, you would see the altar of incense right there. Yeah, right there. Is that where we get the thing in churches where they have that, what is it, that thing they swing that sit? Oh, yeah, the, the uh, thurible, I think, is yeah. what it's called, where you swing it. Is that what it's called, Dr. Gino? <laughs> the thurible, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would love, I would love if there was some science that said, Incense kills coronavirus. Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> Suddenly Lutherans would want incense everywhere. Make it thicker, Pastor. Make it thicker. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe we should fund some research. <laughs> yeah, in, incense, is, incense is such a big part of Old Testament worship. It's such, a, it's such a big part. And then when we get glimpses into heaven, it's such a big part. And when, we get, and when we get glimpses into the new heavens and the new earth, it's such a big part. And then the Christian church is kind of going, hmm, I wonder if we should use any. Nah. <laughs> so so maybe, maybe, that's, um, maybe I can do this in a non-offensive way. Don't tell anyone. But I'm, th- I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Come Easter, come Easter of this year, maybe burn a little in there before anyone comes. Most of the smoke will be dissipated, or people will just think, hmm, there's something wrong with my, my contacts this morning. And it will smell wonderfully in there, and we will be completely free of coronavirus in there. <laughs> just teasing. But, but yeah, this, this might be the way to introduce it, and then people can gain that, that olfactory sensation, those of us who can still smell after coronavirus. Um, but, but yeah, we'll enjoy the incense. Yes, sir? There's a, an article, Aletaria, uh, it says, how incense and mass might be used airborne diseases. Ah, yes, there we go. All right, leave it to the Roman Catholics. How, 
How incense at mass might, uh, what was that, reduce airborne diseases. diseases? Yeah, I like that. I like that. Load up my inbox. <laughs> this is going to be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, anyway, we, we should, yeah, we should. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Lutherans had, uh, oh, thank you. You texted it to me as well. I <laughs> wondered why my pocket buzzed. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Luther, in his day and age, they had incense. Incense has everywhere been appreciated in general because whenever you've got human beings packed together, you know, prior to our age of fantastic hygiene, everyone wanted a little incense, trust me. Um, yeah, yeah. We've got we've to bring this back. I don't want to get too far of a field, but you can, really, you can really tell that somewhere along the line, Lutheranism went from this very rich liturgical tradition that embraced all the senses and was very, uh, was very big in its actions. Even, even baptism, you know, it wasn't like, let's, let's take this little tiny shell and, you know, dab a few drops on the head. I mean, even if it was done in a font, it's like, let's get wet. You know, and I still do that a little bit. I can hear the lady shrieking as the carpet gets a little wet. Well, I mean, silently in their minds as the, as the carpet gets a little wet. But, you know, let's, let's, get, some, let's get some water going for the baptism. Um, we've got beautiful candles. We've retained that. Thanks be to God. But even that is under assault, isn't it? Because you know, nobody sees the point of candles. Um, and, then, and then, yeah, to have, uh, to have incense to have uh, beauty, we're blessed to have the stained glass, but to have a sanctuary that's beautiful, um, that expresses our theology. We're going to come up to a really challenging point where Solomon, Solomon's house seems to be a little better than God's, maybe even. Ooh. Ooh. But, but, and this, the study note, I'm going to blame the study note on this one. They point this out to wealthy American Christians. Are our houses nicer than the sanctuary of the Lord? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So so a real so recovering this real rich tradition of engaging all the senses, you know. And and there's ways that we can do this, you know. Anointing with, with oil is part of the Lutheran tradition and the small C Catholic tradition around baptism, anointing the sick with baptismal oil to remind them of their baptisms. Um, we men we've mentioned incense, we've mentioned candles, but also vestments, uh, kneeler and the sanctuary. Having, having um, we've got a beautiful and large altar fitting for the space. Having our baptismal font embellished to, to be a little more robust. Having our pulpit embellished. You know, we used to have a huge pulpit in there, a huge built-in pulpit. Yeah, it got, uh, it got knocked down and cleared out at some point in our history. Probably when I was a little child, I suddenly was running in the playground, suddenly fell down and was stunned. You know, like there was this disruption in the force. I didn't know what it was, but that was the time in which they're clearing out the pulpit at Faith Capo. And what we currently have as our pulpit was our, is our lectern. Yeah, so that was off to the side. 
So to, to reestablish the, the uh, visible prominence of the Word of God and, and the preaching. I mean, there's so much we can do in our own context to, to bring us back to the richness of the Old Testament, the richness of the, of the early church, the rich, richness of the heritage of our Lutheran forebears. And, and again, what a wonderful way to do that because if we, if we limit Christianity to just intellectual content, then we're really offering people nothing different than the world, and we risk, we risk getting drowned out in a, in a sea of intellectual content. But when we bring people and we, we say to them, your minds are important, so are your bodies and your, and your senses and all that God gives you, and we want to embrace you in mind and body and senses and wrap you in the things of Christ, uh, full, full person experience, yeah, that's when I think that's when I think we're doing it right. That's when I think we're doing it right. You can kind of notice a Gnostic trend too, where it's kind of like, okay, come, come sit down and I'm not saying this is how faith is or, or our sanctuary, but you've been in churches that are kind of like lecture halls. Yeah. Like come sit down. He's gonna he's gonna be up here, he's gonna download some information to your mind. You're gonna get up, shake some hands, eat some donuts, pre-COVID, of course, and and leave, right? <laughs> There's a kind of Gnostic thing about that because it's like we have gnosis, we have knowledge to give you. What about the rest of my body? Eh, right? And so, so a robust biblical theology, a robust Christian theology and Lutheran theology says, no, you are a person. That's, that's mind and body. That's spirit and body. Let's embrace both. We're going to have rich content for your mind, rich gnosis for your mind, but that we're also going to embrace the whole of your body. And you can even see that in the sacraments, can't you? In and of themselves, baptism is a water that goes over your body. Uh, the Lord's Supper is, is the, the bread that is his body, the wine that is his blood given to you to eat and drink. And so already Christianity and its fundamentals embraces the body. And to have our liturgy and liturgical expression embrace the richness of that is, is really the way of the Old Testament, the way of heaven and the way of our, those who have come before us. So I'm excited about what the future holds, as long as they don't drive us underground and out of our sanctuaries. <laughs> we'll see. Then we'll, do it, then we'll do it in our living rooms. Yes. All right. So bear with me here while I try to find my place. It looks like maybe verse 21... Oh, well. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. All right, well, are you getting the imagery? There's stone on the outside, there's a wood layer, and there's wood carvings around, and then there's just gold overlaying everything, so the whole thing's gold. And we also know, in fact, we'll have opportunity to look at this in a minute, but we also know that this was par for the course in terms of the pagan temples around. So people were, people were definitely attuned to giving glory to their God in, in earthly ways, and it's no different here in how, how God instructs Solomon and how Solomon... Uh, conducts that. So the entire inside is overlaid with gold. Remember when Judas gets upset that the woman uses the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet? I very often, very often that comes to my mind when I hear Christians say, well, 
God doesn't need us to, you know, have a nice building or have, a, you know, a golden chalice for the communion or anything like that. You know what I mean? And you kind of, you kind of, you suddenly get that whiff of, of Judas' argument, you know. It, it, it could be, it, Lord, it shouldn't be given to you. It could be given to the poor, right? And the Lord says, the poor you will always have with you. And so, yeah, there's a time and a place to give to the poor, but there's also a time and a place to honor the Lord. And so we have room, we have room to do both, don't we? Yeah. But you yeah. wonder how they look at creation, because creation has different aspects of it, you know, mm -hmm. like the Grand Canyon, the sequoias, the redwoods, they're all different. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're, you're thinking... When they say that, I'm wondering, don't you look at creation? Yeah, yeah. God has richly blessed us as the creator and the designer, and he's given us creation. And there's this beauty in returning creation to him, to his glory, yeah. right? Yeah. To say, you have given us dominion. You've given us these things to enjoy. You've given us dominion over them. And we use that dominion to return them to your glory and praise. And there's something absolutely beautiful about that. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you for that comment. All right, verse, uh, verse 23. In the inner sanctuary, this is really cool, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. So 15 foot high cherubim. Now, that we don't often think about this because we think about the cherubim on the ends of the Ark of the Covenant. These are different than they, and they sit on either side. Again, if you refer back to page 541, these are the giant winged lion-like creatures that you see, um, 15 feet tall, each of them. Now, that is an artist's you know, guess at what they were like, but when you get to the language of cherubim, uh, very, quite frequently, that's what it looks like. So when angels are described as cherubim, angelic beings, is that what you picture? We probably should. We probably should. Um, yeah, the, uh, we've got all kinds of wrong ideas about what angels look like. When you go to the Bible, what angels look like, yeah, like maybe a lot of them look like lions. <laughs> Four-faced four creatures, gigantic creatures with like rainbow-looking heads. I mean, really, like really incredibly majestic, unspeakably wonderful beings. Even, even what, what kind of looks like a, a very impressive, important angel, don't get me wrong, but not one of the most... Um, extraordinary looking, and, and John falls down and worships him. You remember this? And the angel has to say, no, no, no. We worship God. Um, but that's how awesome these beings are, and such that when they arrive biblically, every, they always have to say, do not be afraid. And so, I mean, I'm convinced that what makes us all bored with Christianity is all false. You know, it's all lies of the devil that <laughs> angels are these boring little chubby chubby babies with horns, you know, and this kind of thing that we all grow up with. It's like the angelic race is like the wildest zoo you can imagine, only they're more powerful and intelligent than we are. <laughs> all right, so yeah, the, there's these two cherubim of olive wood. What do you think is going to happen next? Uh, each 10 cubits high, 15 feet high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. So basically filling that room is the wingspan. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. 
The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out, so that a wing of one touched the one wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Yeah, as soon as you saw they were wood, you immediately thought, what? These are going to be covered in gold. Yeah, <laughs> and so they are. So they are. Yeah, as, I, as Isaiah sees his vision in Isaiah chapter 6, the, the cherubim are described as seraphim and as having six wings. So just further deepening the mystery of, of what it is like those who flank God on his throne, you know. Do they change form? Do they shape shift? Are there different kinds? Are there different kinds at different times, etc., etc.? There's great, great and fascinating mystery and wonder. But here two cherubim, uh, four wings between the two of them. All right, verse 29, around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. So look, look, heaven and earth joined together. Heaven and earth joined together. The cherubim along with the palm trees, open flowers, etc. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold. In the inner and outer rooms. Gold everywhere. Verse 31, for the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered, um, I, I think that that's, let me double check this. Yeah, 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 631, they had the shape of a pentagon. So the note says, um, the doors, in regard to the doors, one giving entrance to the inner sanctuary and the other to the nave. The latter had the ordinary form of a square. The former rectangular at bottom and triangular at the top had the shape of a pentagon. Very interesting. So these were doors, not not a curtain like in a... Later. Yeah, there, well, there's going to be, men, I believe there's going to be mention of the curtain, but yeah, there's doors. So there's, I think there's a, I think the sense is there's a solid wall with a curtain in front of it. I think that that's the case. Although, can I table that before I give a definitive answer? And let's see, because that's, I didn't really think about that ahead of time. So don't take that as the definitive word. We'll, Try to figure that out as we go. Okay, yes, so, so once more, verse 31, for the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made, um, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. 
so also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. Yeah, and maybe maybe worthwhile to just turn back very briefly to 541 and more as a general kind of comment. If you look on the left where the writing is and you see the holy place pointing to the larger part of the temple, which is not the most holy place, it says the holy place with incense altar, lampstands and tables. We'll get those all described for us later. Around all the walls he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. So those are the walls we're looking at. Cherubim represented angels that guarded sacred objects and places in light of Exodus 24. Remember Exodus 24 is in the, is in the Ten Commandments and it's forbidding the making of engraven images. But here God commands it. So really what does he mean? He means, that, he means the worship of these images. Yeah. yeah, It doesn't mean that you have to go home and Know, destroy all your dash, yeah, all your dolphin statues. You know. <laughs> or if you've got a Christmas angel, you know, you don't have to take a baseball bat. Yeah. So this is this is for worship, and and this is one of the key places you can see. And I mean, also you can kind of get the sense. I mean, some Christians sometimes go so far as to say three dimensional representations, like statues, are are inherently evil. I mean, how can you say that? Because look look at the they can't be inherently evil. Look at, look at the Old Testament where God commands these things. Look at the three-dimensional uh, cherubim, 15 feet tall each. Yeah, so just to k- finish this note, in light of Exodus 24, these cherubim were not objects of worship. This art reconstruction recognizes archaeologically attested Near Eastern forms of Solomon's historical period and general region. Yeah, thus, i.e., this is sort of our best guess of what it looked like, but we don't actually have any remnants of it to base that on. Okay. So, we must have gotten through... Verse 36. Let's just do 37 and call it a day, and then we'll go into Solomon building his palace. (laughs) So here, kind of a summary statement in 37. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I mean, we've just gotten the impression like this all happened in a week. Uh, Yeah, not. Not. And as we saw, a fair amount of it put together off-site and then brought in. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. So again, we were told at the beginning 
the fourth year of his reign, that's when the foundation was laid. Seven years later, the 11th year of his reign is when it's finished. Um, right next to that, right next to that, chapter 7, verse 1, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. I really wanted, upon reading that, I really wanted to believe that he just put it as such a second priority that it just, you know, took longer. It's probably not the case. I think it turns out bigger, too. So. <laughs> As the study note says, um, Solomon's house takes almost twice as long to build as the temple, an ominous foreshadowing of Solomon's shifting priorities. Yeah, the author has, remember this is written, oh, when is this written? After, the, after this temple is destroyed, somewhere around 540, I think, B.C. is First and Second Kings is written. And so already, already in the story there's foreshadowing. You know, we pointed that out with his marrying the Egyptian and his worshiping on the high places. And here is yet another place where there's foreshadowing, and the author is intentionally doing this. All right, next week, chapter 7, the Lord be with you.